It's Song Talk Radio. Welcome to Song Talk Radio. This is the show with songwriters talking to other songwriters about the craft of songwriting. We share tips, tools, and techniques, and together we all become better at writing songs. I'm your host, Neil Modi, and with me, my co-host, Phil Emery. How are you, Phil? I am doing fine, actually. It's been a very interesting day here in St. John's. We unexpectedly got a third cat that we found as a stray in a in a graveyard. So who would have thunk? We now Ooh, have the three pet cats. cemetery. Yeah. <laughs> fun, fun times. <laughs> Good for you. All right. And tonight, uh, we're happy to bring back our ex-co-host, Michael Proudfoot. How are you doing, Mike? Hey, guys. I'm doing well. I'm very happy to be back. It's uh, it's nice to be here. And, uh, you know, I missed you guys and I missed the show. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I, I got to ask, though, what did you call the cat, Phil? Spooky? You yeah, found him no, in a graveyard. We, we called her Sadie because she's a cute little kitten and very... Loving and gentle. Ugh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you know, found a cat in the graveyard. You could have really run with that. Yeah, all. exactly. <laughs> Zombie cat. Uh, she's, she's too nice. She's. Uh, <laughs> she didn't know it was right. a graveyard. She's a cat. That's true. Exactly. That's she a very really human institution for a cat to be even aware That's of. That's true. <laughs> and it's a graveyard, not a cemetery? Is there a difference? There is. One, and I can't remember which, one is part like part of church grounds, and one is freestanding, so to speak. Okay. It's a freestanding one, then. Okay. I think, I think, <laughs> that's, a, I think that's a graveyard. <laughs> okay, well, Michael Googles that. Um, please, yeah, listeners, uh, please, good to please be back. let us know yeah. if, if, you, if you know what's the difference between cemetery and a graveyard. There was a Halloween episode a couple of weeks ago. Um, send your comments or questions uh, to at Song Talk Radio or definitions uh, on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Song Talk Radio or feedback at songtalk.ca and uh, we'll share your thoughts and feelings on the show. And uh, please visit songtalk.ca to show to see the show post for this episode and to find links to resources and things uh, we mention. And uh, before we get to today's very special episode, um, we always like to get emails and we like to get comments on on our website and uh, on on our on our really cool episode we did a, a few weeks ago, getting past writer's block with uh, Susan Catania. If you haven't checked that one out, definitely check that one out. It was a really good um, thing. Uh, we we talked a little bit um, off the beginning about uh, writing songs in different modes, which heads up is going to be our songwriting challenge for 2023. Yes. And, and and Susan had a couple of good resources and Spotify playlists that one of her colleagues from Berkeley even provided for songs written in different modes and things. And um, and we got a comment um, from uh, from Paul on that episode, and he says, uh, I keep coming back to this. One thing I have found is that modes are not difficult. We just get caught up in the intellectual idea. Here's a video that I found super helpful, and he linked to yet another YouTube video that goes over looking at looking at modes from a theoretical point of view. And and the, the more, you know, I hit these things, the algorithm keeps sending me all these videos, of course, about about modes. And and I, I think I think the takeaway at this point now is that yes, there are many, many different ways to look at modes, as there are in, in music theory in general. There's always two or three different ways of looking at the same thing. So, you know, you don't want to get caught up in this is right or this is wrong way to look at it. You know, the, 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 the video that I shared on that episode um, was about one of my favorite YouTubers, uh, David Bennett, who explained it in terms of uh, uh, darkness and brightness. And that made the most sense to me, given the knowledge that I had already built up about modes and the playing around, not really playing around with it, but things that I knew about modes already. So it, it, in that context, it made the most sense to me. That video may not have made sense to everybody. You know, you got to start somewhere, but, you know, there are tons of resources out there and tons of ways of looking at this stuff. So. Definitely get yourself primed, listeners, because the songwriting challenge is coming. That's <laughs> right. Think. And we're going to be jumping into this in January. So, um, yeah, best to be, uh, best to have a little preparation, I think, you know, a little homework. Um, and there'll be a test in December. Yes. <laughs> graveyard. What about the graveyard? Oh, graveyard. Graveyard, okay. <laughs> graveyard you, is the one that's with a, ch- with a church. And cemetery is not. I'd probably easy to remember because Pet Cemetery, there was no church near the Pet Cemetery in that Stephen. Okay, ah, fair enough. Which is probably why all that happened. 
Yeah. Exactly. Without the, the positive influence of the church. Church. <laughs> you think? Probably the first time I've said that. That's true. <laughs> All these, all these heathen areas, of course, are going to go crazy. <laughs> okay, and today, of course, is a very special day on Song Talk Radio. It is our 423-episode spectacular. Mm. Happy and anniversary, guys. Also known as our nine-year nine anniversary, if you divide <laughs> 423 by about 50 episodes per year. Um, nine years, wow. Nine years, hooray for us. Yeah, it's a long time. It's a long yeah. time. 2013, we started this uh, this little project that's uh, become Song Talk Radio, and yeah, we've been through a lot of uh, changes and a lot of, um, I want to say ups and downs. It's been mostly ups. <laughs> one, of the, one of the fun things that uh, I came across last, uh, last couple of weeks was on Facebook. One of the memories that it sent out was mm. the post I made when we did a demo at uh, CJRU, which is the radio station at uh, Metropolitan University, was called Ryerson uh, Polytechnic. University. Yeah. And it says, um, oh, just did a, a demo of Song Talk Radio. By God, I think we have a show. Yeah. I guess we do. And you are. Yeah, because we had we had to submit a little demo to the radio station. We just did a little quickie conversation about songwriting in fifteen minutes and yeah. <laughs> sent it off to them, and they were like, "Hey, great!" <laughs> Started off as a half an hour show with two guests, mm -hmm. and then was a half an hour show with one guest, and then morphed into one hour show. And now we're trying to get it back into a, a tighter formation, but it seems to wander to an hour more often than not. That's, there's no limits on the internet, that's why. That's true. <laughs> well, yeah. And because we're not tied into an hour slot at the radio station anymore, we're kind of free to do whatever. <laughs> All right, so, and today we're just really going to just look at, um, look at the past year. Um, and of course, this past year is, uh, you know, Michael, you were with us for a good portion of it. Mm-hmm. Which is why we invited you back um, Thank you. to see what uh, what reflections you had um, on the time that you were you were with us from twenty twenty one into into twenty twenty two. Yeah, I went I went through to uh, familiarize myself or just to try to re remember because the year goes by so gosh gosh darn quickly. It does, um, and there were a lot of good episodes. So um, I was trying to f figure out how to choose one over the other. I, I think. What I come up with is, uh, as entertaining as the show is, it's also nice to have some kind of uh, information or something that songwriters can pick up on. And so we had a couple of guests who uh, I thought were, were quite good at imparting knowledge to the listeners and still being quite entertaining and fun guests. So that's uh, mostly what I chose. And then uh, I also picked something kind of that I learned when I was uh, listening to one of the uh, the episodes, or when I was taking part in one of the episodes. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe uh, I don't. Should we get into it? Or well, I, I think this past year has been it's it's been a little bit different in that um, we, especially with regards to our songwriting challenge, like we really pulled that songwriting challenge, milked it for all it was worth, and we got a lot yeah. of value out of it because. Some of those conversations on the Songwriting Challenge episodes to me were like the most valuable because because we really dove deep on on especially on listener songs and on our own songs and really kind of pulled the pulled the layers back on on the songwriting process and, and kind of got a little bit deeper, arguably deeper than we would even with 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 some of our some of our guests. Um, so that that, that was certainly um, a highlight um, for me. You know, so some of my film, my favorite people of all time came back uh, this year, Jacob Moon, um, Gilbert Neal. Um, and I, I've totally made a new, uh, I became a new fan of uh, Susan Catanio, um, who's been mm. on our show a few times. She's been definitely a highlight, uh, has come back as a co-host uh, a couple of times, and as well her own episode um, to start with. Um, really, really deep uh, knowledge and uh, and just a lovely person <laughs> overall. Um, and uh, I became a, a, a new fan of um, of uh, Terry Penny, for example, and Alicia Toner, especially, um, was one of the episodes that uh, mm -hmm. became a fan of, of 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 her music as well. So it's a lot of a lot of great um, value for me. I thought the um, I was very happy with the songwriting challenge. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of fun, and I think we I think everyone got a lot of value from it. 
we should do more of because I think it does push people into having a deadline. Yeah. Which is an important thing to have. Otherwise, stuff never actually gets done. And having a deadline does make you actually try to get something in on time. And I think we just we just learned so much from it. So I think it's uh, the songwriting challenge definitely, definitely did it for me, I think. How about for you, Mike? Have you continued to listen uh, off and on since you've left us? Off and on, yeah. yeah. Um, I think, though, the songwriting challenge, because it um, took place over a long period of time, it was a... Uh, you know, sort of a, a real-time exercise in songwriting and feedback and progression. So I thought it was inter interesting listening to, uh, well, both your songs as how they changed, because uh, we rev we revisited them as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And also um, some of the uh, submissions, people would, you know, send in a, a, a song and then maybe a week or two or three later, go, wait, I've, I've updated it, I've, you know, and they would also, you know, kind of uh, revisit their songs. So I, I thought that uh, that was probably the, and because it, it went over a larger period of time than usual, I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, because deadline, deadline, deadline or no, we were late in getting our songs done in the first place. And I'm glad <laughs> that so many people, uh, you know, took part in it. I thought that yeah. was great. Yeah, I was delighted by that. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. You know, the fact that we got to actually talk to some, some publicity people, I like when we're, our shows can sort of deal with those kinds of information that would sort of help someone kind of get their career going. Even if they don't want to be a professional, they may, in fact, want to just get a little bit better than where they are now. And uh, knowing about when to hire a publicist and what they do i thought was really good i enjoyed those episodes yeah when we totally geeked out about midi 2.0 <laughs> that was fun <laughs> i'm like i'm a big tech guy so i love that kind of stuff yeah 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 it was it was it was great and just uh hearing about uh mike kent's big brain and like what a great job he has he just kind of i know eh? makes stuff you know that's very cool yeah and speaking of speaking of publicists you know this year we've we've actually you know, established a great relationship with with that publicist you're you're talking about with Carrie Zalek, who's who's actually been responsible for providing us with a lot of our guests. Like mm -hmm. we get the we get the PR announcements from her about guests that are you know just released something or have got something coming down the pipe, and you know we take a listen to their stuff and invite them on the show, and she handles booking them for us and everything so she's been she's been really amazing and professional um and 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 certainly even if and you're right phil even if you're not professional or pursuing music as a career you probably know somebody who is so if you're listening mm. to the podcast and and you know you you think that that would be a good resource for you know somebody in your life that you know then certainly you know feel free to forward them that episode because it was there was a lot of good information um when carrie was on the show and answered a lot of, you know, really helpful questions about, you know, when you should engage with a publicist and when you shouldn't, um, and the kind of services she offers and the kind of things you should really look out for. And yeah, it was a good, it was a good time. Yeah, it was definitely one of my favorite episodes. Uh, when we were talking about uh, choosing our favorites and maybe an excerpt, that was one of the ones that I chose because I thought she mm -hmm. uh, was very entertaining and, and very knowledgeable and, and brought in a lot of... Uh, very useful advice for uh, newcomers and for established artists. Uh, when you take on an artist or work with the artist, what is it that you need from them? Great question. So uh, when we decide to work with a client, we send them our asset list, which is one of the most important things they're going to get um, delivered from us. And we tell them exactly all of the things that we need in order to run a successful campaign. So just as a very brief example, we're going to ask for their bio if they have one. We're going to ask for photos that come with photography credit. We want to know who took those photos. We need the MP3. We need the WAV file. Um, we want to know if you've been reviewed before or picked up in different types of, of media um, and when. You know, was it 15 years ago and that magazine doesn't exist anymore or was it three weeks ago in exclaim, uh, which is hopefully I'm saying that right. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, you know, it's, yeah. So, you know, that's something else that we, we always want to follow up. If we know that a journalist has covered um, the client, we're going to ask for a quote 
I want to know directly from you in three to five sentences what the song means. What does it mean to you? What do you want people to get out of it? Um, so we're going to ask you for a bunch of things. It's all very clearly laid out. But we also, once we have everything and sort of rummage through our, our files that the, the clients give us, we book what we call a start date call to go over everything. Um, and that is at the very beginning of our campaign. We actually call that harassment week where we're just going back. Okay, so that, that was Carrie Zellick talking. That was from the episode. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, again, so it was great to have her on the show, and um, yeah, that was that's a very useful, um, very useful, just like getting down to get down to the actual things. <laughs> like, very practical. Yeah, a checklist. Yeah, yeah. literally a checklist. <laughs> it's good to have some idea of where you need to go if you want to hire a public, uh, you know, publicity person, as opposed to going, gee, I think I need to hire someone. What do I do? You know, that's that's always the toughest thing, I think. Yeah. So when, when, one one of the shows that I really enjoyed um, was one of the ones that uh, Susan we mentioned a, a few minutes ago. Susan Catanio co-hosted um, uh, with me. Uh, we had a songwriter by the name of Terry Penny um, on the show, and uh, he kind of. He was very much a, a wordsmith and very much a um, three chords in the truth um, kind of guy, but very genuine, very authentic, very um, down to earth uh, a, a person. And um, and and Susan, being Susan, she got right into the mechanics of his song <laughs> and and started pointing out this this type of rhyme that I'd never heard of before, but called mosaic rhymes, where you where you rhyme a single word in one line and then in another line you uh, rhyme a group of words so a, a group of words that rhymes with one word right and and that's why it's a mosaic because it's a group it's a grouping of things um and she noticed that of course in in in, in Terry's song and um and here's the little uh, conversation they had about it so the song that we're going to talk about today um I, there are so many things that I kind of want to address with you. First of all, because I've listened to some of your other songs as well, you know, you're obviously a wordsmith. So tell me about um, how you construct the the lyrics. Do you use a rhyming dictionary or anything like that? Because a lot of your rhymes are really, really interesting to me. So tell me how that comes about for you. Never use a dictionary in my life or whatever. No, never. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, because I just wonder because they're some of them are are they're they're clever. They're they're kind of what we call mosaic rhymes. Mosaic rhymes are when you'll have like a word like appreciate and you rhyme it with the quiche he ate. So you'll have like a construction of words together that make the same sound as another word. Mm. Is that right. something that you just picked up from from listening to others? What, what that's a really distinctive thing to have in your songwriting. Another another bit for my list of you know songwriting terminologies. You can just like mosaic rhymes. That's an interesting thing. I've learned two things today. One that there's a difference between a graveyard and a cemetery, and one about mosaic rhymes. So that's yeah. pretty good. And the show's not even half over. I know. <laughs> we barely got into it. <laughs> that's value. That's just some of the value. Exactly. Right? I I when you'd mentioned what mosaic rhymes were, I not. Uh, heard that term before, but I noticed it a lot in rap music. Mm. That, mm. Uh, and maybe because that's such a lyrically dense and focused uh, uh, musical form, but uh, you, you see, you know, you hear that a lot in rap. Yeah. Well, it's certainly something now that we're aware of it, now that I'm aware of it, I'll, I'll come to hear it more in, in songs. I'll be like, oh, pin, pin that, uh, you pick that out and be like, oh, yeah, that was a mosaic rhyme. Yes. Now we, now we can label it. And move on. Yeah, you can label it, but it's also <laughs> something you can try to use yourself because it, it is kind of an interesting thing. It, it, it seems a little more advanced than you know because every time I rhyme, it's always you know a perfect kind of a word for word, word softer rhyme, thing. but it's always one word, one word, and, and the same number of syllables and whatever. So it's kind of kind of interesting to to find yet another shading of of how to expand that palette um, a little bit more. That would be a fun challenge, actually. I have a song that full of mosaic rhymes. Hey, why not? So I guess every two lines would be like a rhyme pair. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, she gave an example there, appreciate and the key she ate. So, yeah, I mean, whatever kind of grouping you can you can come up with. I suppose if your song is rampant with them, it maybe becomes a little annoying, <laughs> maybe, but, you know. Yeah, I think it has to have a 
point. It can't just be for the sake of doing it. I think well, that would, yeah, that, that, that's just it. be an it's exercise. Gotta, yeah, it's oh, sure. got to fit a story <laughs> somehow, I think. Oh, sure. <laughs> How about you, Mike? What, uh, is there another, uh, another bit of the show that you remember? Um, yeah, um, he has been a guest several times, and he is great and knowledgeable. Mr. Eric Alper uh, is a, a, a good friend of the show. And uh, I remember we had come across these alarming headlines that catalog music was outselling uh, new music. Uh, and we thought, well, it may seem like that, but is it so? And uh, we thought, well, let's get Mr. Alper on because he knows lots about this sort of stuff and, and see what his take on it was. And I, th I found his take on it to be very interesting. I think it was back in 2015. That was the first time that uh, catalog music outsold new music. And I've noticed from searching it that this happens periodically. Uh, but I think uh, it's not quite as cut and dried as old music, you know, people would rather listen to old music than new music. I think it has to do with a number of factors. But I am curious, uh, is this uh, a signal of some massive change? Does this mean that people aren't interested in new music? And I thought, well, how could we figure this out? And I thought, well, our friend Eric Alper would probably know, or at least have a number of suggestions and, <laughs> and theories. <laughs> so so is, is this uh, a reason to be alarmed? Um, I think if you're a new artist, yes. I think if you're a new artist that's not on TikTok, doubly yes. And and I think that, you know, it all depends on on what side of the industry that you're on. You know, if you are one of the dozen or so companies that have seemingly bought up every single classic song of the last 60 years to 30 years, um, you're really, really happy with this. This is why you were seeing hundreds of millions of dollars exchange hands to people like Bob Dylan or Sting. And Paul Simon is now right right at this moment um, negotiating, selling his catalog. We've seen Phil Collins get up there in terms of wanting to sell his catalog. So, you know, the ability for that kind of music, music from, say, 1960 to 1990, that every generation until we all blow up to smithereens in some nuclear war are going to be listening to this music forever because all these companies want is they want their money back and they want their investment back and they want it fast. So we're going to hear Bob Dylan in television commercials. We're going to see um, Sting story in Broadway and on, you know, soundtrack work. So I think if you're that side of the company and you thrive on catalogs, I think this is great news. I think if you're a brand new artist, you probably already know that nothing sticks these days. It's really hard for any book, any television show, any movie to really land in the center of America or North America or the world in terms of everybody all consuming the same thing at the same time for a long period of time. You know, there will never be another album like Michael Jackson's Thriller or Nevermind by Nirvana. We're too scattered. And I think that these numbers that were were revealed, that catalog sales, meaning music that is more than two years older, are seemingly, you know, demolishing the, the newer numbers uh, in terms of new artists, in terms of new songs, I think is really scary. It, but it all depends on what side of the industry you're on. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Not terribly uh, uh, positive if you're a new artist, it seems. No. <laughs> no, certainly not. But, I mean, is there good news for any new artist <laughs> in terms of the industry? I mean, yeah, yeah and, 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 and uh, I think Eric's got a good handle on these things and a good good insight into them and he he, he just he just kind of mm -hmm. tells it like it is a lot of the time yeah. <laughs> there may be more artists who make an okay living maybe not being huge stars but actually have middle class income just because mm -hmm. you have more control over your your fame whereas before it was in the hands of the labels and the industry and the media so now it's it's a little bit different maybe i don't know yeah, I think I think there's some. I, I I wonder how much how much of that's actually changed over the over the years, or just because, you know, 
we are more engaged with these artists and I've become fans of them. And so I'm more aware of this kind of amazing middle ground of people who are not super famous, but they're, in my opinion, they're just as talented as anybody on the radio, if not more so. And they're producing great work and I can go to see them at a show and actually shake their hand and, <laughs> and, and, and say hi to them and, you know, support them by their merchandise you know, continue that 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 kind of that kind of relationship with them. So I think it's you know it's it's it it, it, it it's something that that I, I I say to a lot of people when we start discussing things about about career is that you know there's there's there is this middle ground of super between superstardom and amateurish thing where a lot of the artists that I know they're teaching on the side. Um, mm. They're doing workshops. Um, you know, they're they're doing uh, songs for film and TV, um, or or compositions or things like that for film and TV. Um, in addition to just being a singer songwriter, um, as such, so it's really it's really a, a myriad of things that they do, and you know, and 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 they and they've managed to bang out a living out of that, and that's that's kudos to them, you know. One of the things I liked about our shows, and we had lots of. Lots of great ones, mm-hmm. although I have to admit, some some of the ones I was thinking about turned out to be from the year before or even oh. the year before. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know kind, uh, kind of blur. Time goes uh, by so quickly. Yeah. It does. It all blurs together. <laughs> One of the things I loved about Susan's show was when she was here as, as a guest, uh, she talked mm-hmm. about modes and the fact that she wrote uh, her song in Mixolydian, and mm. I thought it was quite apparent. It was very apparent what the mode sounded like, mm. and I thought that was quite uh, quite nice. I just love the fact, um, you know, the way we started off the conversation, uh, because I love the way that she approached songwriting. We have so many people who write down their lyrics first, and then they, you know, try to get a melody from the lyrics, and they build a song from that. And Susan works a little bit like I do, where she starts off with either the chorus or the main riff and then works out from that. So this is uh, Susan Catenio talking about her songwriting process. And I love I loved what Phil was saying about like rewriting songs, because I'm all about that. <laughs> well, following up on what Phil was saying, how, how, how do you start songs? Are you a, are you a lyrics first person or a music first person or in between somewhere? Um, well, I definitely think that I go for the words first, because for me, I kind of have to know the direction of the song. And so I usually start with the hook or the title of the song, and I mm-hmm. will write from there. So I usually write the chorus first. And once I have the hook, then I start vocalizing it because I'm a singer second, mm-hmm. probably. And so um, you know, I'll usually create the chorus first and then write the verses around it. I've done both where I've done like, I've done music first and then done the words and I've done word first and done the music. And I find that probably the most authentic songs for me are when the words and the music are kind of occurring at the same time. So, mm-hmm. you know, like switching instruments, I play piano and guitar and kind of going back and forth between those. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely a great episode. If you haven't heard it, I urge yeah, you to yeah. go back and listen to it. Yeah, definitely, definitely recommend that one. And Susan's very, she's very big on the prosody front. She knows, and yes. in, in other people's songs and in her own song range, she's very conscious and keen of lining up music and lyrics so that they point in the same direction and there's a unified wholeness to the whole thing that just emanates quality. <laughs> Michael, is there another um, piece that you remember? Well, yeah, um, it was it was you, Phil. It was all about you. <laughs> it always is me. Uh, you kept uh, saying and suggesting we should do a show on the Ruddles. We should do a show on the Ruddles, and and Neil and I were like, yeah, yeah, okay, Phil, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then finally, we Which did. Which is what you said about everything I ever suggested. <laughs> but we really okay. said about that one. Uh, and I, I was like, okay, about a, a satire about the Beatles, and and I wasn't sure how it would work, but it turned out to be uh, really interesting to watch the film, and it turned out to be really interesting to talk about uh, musical parodies, and in particular how they do uh, musical parodies of the Beatles. Because, uh, and we talked about it in the episode, unlike Weird Al, where he just takes a song and changes the lyrics and, and 
you know, has a bit of fun with it. Uh, this one a bit deeper, where the songs themselves were kind of straight, but uh, there was still comedy and, and uh, there was a great deal of art to it. And in trying to figure out what made them work and what they didn't work, uh, it really, I, I thought it took me down a road into examining the songs quite seriously. So uh, it was a great idea of yours, Phil, if I, if I didn't tell you that in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Made me think of, uh, of, of now I haven't seen it, but I have heard the soundtrack of the uh, Cirque du Soleil Vegas show Love about the, oh. because uh, one of the things they do um, I, I, in uh, in the Ruttles is they take very familiar Beatle riffs or sounds or but they put it in different songs. You know, like they'll take a familiar fill or break or something, but it isn't in the song that you think it's from. It's in a different one. Yeah. And there's a kind of a cut and paste or a remix uh, to the Beatles work in uh, Love as well, which is very yeah. enjoyable. You get to hear uh, the, the songs you know so well in a different context. Yeah, that was a fun show. Yeah, and then that was actually, I remember on that show, because I, I, I had the same kind of attitude uh, Mike, after you, after Phil pushed us to do this, and I was like, "Ah, oh, Ruddle's fine. Okay, never seen it before. I don't want to judge, but whoop de do, right?" And then, but it was actually <laughs> kind of it was kind of funny to watch it. And then, and then the thing that that you had pointed out, Mike, on on the episode about about how it is actually interesting to see like the inversions and the, the 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 pieces that they did take from the Beatles and the pieces that they invented for themselves and the kind of combination of those things and it is kind of an interesting um exercise we had that one songwriter I don't know if it was the year before but that fellow who who literally like wrote a Beatles song like it was it was his original song mm. but it was very 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 Beatlesque <laughs> like everyone writes something that's kind of Beatlesque <laughs> but this guy's song was really really and 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 you know and he made a career out of that <laughs> and I was like Going uh, circling back to what um, Eric Alper said about catalog music and how that there will never be another Thriller uh, album, and in some ways, you can't really do the Ruddles with many artists today because they're not that widely widely known, not in sort of a cultural kind of way, hmm. um, sort of modern. You know, maybe Kanye West. But even I don't know his stuff all that well. No, it isn't the same shared experience. The Beatles were this phenomenon that was a musical phenomenon worldwide in a way that, you know, even Elvis or other acts that were similarly famous, you know, weren't. I mean, they um, were famous for a type of music in the beginning and then people stuck with them as their musical career advanced. So I think uh, more than any other artists, people kind of listened to a progression and absorbed that and, and learned it even subconsciously, because that's what some of the, the jokes and the musical references in the Ruttles are about, is about the different stages of it. Spinal Tap played with that later on when they, you know, they did their advance from when they were, you know, listening to the Flower People. Uh, you know, they were the different stages of that band. Uh, but, you know, that that was a bit of an inside joke. And it was a, a comedy for musicians, I think, to a great degree. Whereas the Beatles were, you know, playing it straight. And it was a very unique uh, shared experience for a lot of people. Spinal Tap became an actual band. Did the Ruddles become an actual band, or was an it just actual a touring band? I don't think so. Okay, no, 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 not to the same know. degree as Spinal Tap did. Yeah, I think they got together and did a couple of you know shows here and there, hmm. but they were they didn't actually go out and be an they you know didn't actually go out and, and do an act. Yeah, yeah. Spinal Tap did a couple of tours, right? Yeah. But it's which is tough because what works well in a movie, because being completely incompetent on stage. Because they weren't incompetent, they were kind of goofy. I was tempted to see that, but I just sort of thought, I don't know if this would work all that well. Hmm. You talking about Spinal Tap or Live Run? Spinal Tap. Yeah, Spinal uh, yeah. Because without the context of the joke, I mean, they they wrote silly songs, but the yeah. you know the musicianship and and the uh, mm -hmm. songwriting was competent. Yeah, it wasn't stellar, <laughs> which is okay. <laughs> still want to do an episode on uh, Hard Day's Night, which I think changed the music oh, yeah, industry yeah. fundamentally. 
seen bits and pieces of that. I don't think I've ever seen the entire thing. <laughs> really? Oh, it's an amazing film. Hmm. It is. Seemed awfully goofy. Well, it, when you think that they'd never acted before, and hmm. it was written for them and written for their persona. I mean, I think Richard Lester, I don't know if he wrote it, but he was the director. Mm -hmm. But he'd seen their tour and their press conference and thought, oh, if they can do that in like off the cuff, I can write a movie for them. And it was kind of, you know, he figured out a way to, to uh, expand all their personas in a way that they could still be themselves without mm -hmm. being actors. Right, right, right. It, it changed the music industry and I think the film industry almost single-handedly in a lot of ways. Well, it gave Elvis a film career. Oh, yeah? Well, they yeah. realized, oh, we can make a movie and it doesn't have to be good. It just needs to have songs in it. <laughs> now, Hard Day's Night was good, unlike the yeah. other Beatle films. Uh, or not definitely as good. I think Help was okay. It was all right. Uh, but it was more, as the Beatles themselves admit, it was just an excuse to go to exotic locations. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then what was it, uh, the one after that uh, magical mystery tour, it was Paul's direction, and it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> he admits it, they admit it, yeah. But, uh, no, but the lesson was learned early on by people who want to make money from films, that, oh, you just put some popular music in a film, and it'll make money, regardless of how crappy the film is. And then Elvis had a film career. Now, uh, Neil, you got some more uh, reminiscence. Things. Yeah, so when I was really looking over the shows and trying to pick out some some interesting tidbits, it was really about things that I learned. So things that were kind of new to me, was hence the hence the Mosaic Rhymes I'd never heard of before. And um, and what, 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 one of my favorite people that um, I met, that we, we all met over the course of the year, is uh, Chad Shank, who um, has, uh, he's from Minnesota, and he has his uh, at-home songwriting YouTube channel and meetup group. And on on this on this meetup group and on his YouTube channel, he does tons of like really long-form content presentations, seminars, uh, webinars, um, uh, when, where he engages his audience in all these different exercises about writing your chorus, writing your pre-chorus, uh, dealing with rhymes, the, all the stuff. You know that that we that we that we talk about on the podcast. He he goes through a lot of these um, uh, things, and he also has a, a series of like shorter videos where he just tackles one little uh, topic. And he actually just completed an exercise um, in October, um, just passed, where he uh, uh, imposed a challenge upon himself to uh, write, record, and release a ten-song album in a month in thirty days. And he managed to pull it off uh, throughout October. He wrote ten songs, and he has he did a little YouTube on you know his his process through that and how you know like like you were saying having a deadline <laughs> makes the biggest difference in the world, right? And um and and we invited him on the show um uh, last January, and uh, he was talking about this this notion about um, when you have uh, a similar rhyming pattern and a similar melody shape. Um, in say your verses or even your chorus, whatever, um, then that th th that's kind of a prevalent thing in hit songs, and 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 I haven't really uh, started to listen for that uh, quite yet in songs that I'm listening for or listening to. But but now that I've now that I've pulled this little bit out, I think I think it's it, it's another one of those things on my list of things to listen for when I'm listening to especially more poppy music. Are are the are the melody shapes and the rhymes lining up um, in, in in a way? So here's here's Chad talking about it. One of the things that I've noticed, and Berkeley talks about this as well, is a lot of times your rhyme scheme actually matches the melodic motif scheme within a song as well. So if you take like a song like um, "Fire and Rain" by James Taylor. The the verses in the verses, the rhyme scheme matches what's happening in the melody. So a lot of times lines that sound the same melodically will rhyme lyrically. And I think that's something that mm. a lot of songwriters don't pay attention to. But if you listen to a lot of hit songs, mm. the lines that have the same melody have the same rhyme. And rhyme is really lyrical melody, right? Because it's a it's a sonic and uh, a phonetic piece of your lyric that your listener connects with and it and it creates um not only prosody but it also creates closure and and momentum within your line as well because the closer you have your rhymes together the faster that line seems to move 
that's a really interesting point about um about it about it being a lyrical melody or a lyrical melody so to speak because we 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 did a show a long time not a long long time ago but a short while ago phil on like what makes a song catchy you remember that i think we had alistair on the show Oh, talking yes. about what what makes a song a song catchy, and, and one of the things we pointed out on the show is that it's not just melody. Sometimes it's perfect rhyme after perfect rhyme after perfect rhyme can really propel a song forward and make it sound catchy. Right. So there is there is a very tight relationship there, and, and the way Chad explained it, it, it really brings that to the forefront about about the relationship between lyric and rhyme and and melody, and how it can really, you know, strengthen. Of a, 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 a song, of the craft of a song. If you if you if you if you're going for like a really catchy kind of thing, definitely. Yeah, no, Chad's a a smart cookie, and that's a, another great episode. There's a lot of depth in our catalog. After nine years, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I do think so. Yeah, I think you have one more. I think, don't you? Uh, I had I had one more. This one's a bit of a long one. Uh, this was a, a more recent show. Uh, Matt Zaddy, who, who I've been following for a few years, became a fan of a, a few years ago, um, is a, a singer-songwriter from Mississauga, Ontario, just outside Toronto. And when he came on the show, I, I think maybe we made the mistake of telling him, you can get as technical as you want. So he went deep <laughs> onto this mm-hmm. concept of secondary dominance, which I'd heard before. And and to hear him explain it, he he goes through it very he goes through a lot of stuff very quickly. Um, and I had to listen to it a couple of times, but I finally kind of got what he's talking about. And it's like when you think about a a, a dominant uh, cadence in your chord progression, it's always the five to the one. It's always the you know G major to the C major. Um, in, 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 if you're in the in the key of C, so a secondary dominant is basically you're doing that same movement of five to one. But the one isn't the one of the key you're in. The one is one of the other chords in your in 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 the palette, right? So, for example, if you're in the key of C and you and and just for a moment, for like two lines of your verse, you want the one to become A minor instead of C, then you use the dominant chord for A minor, which is a D seven, which is technically out of key, but it feels the same as doing your normal five to one, but it's like a different um, five to one. If that, if that sort of makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It's something that you have to kind of sit down with your instrument and kind of uh, play around and then you'll kind of understand it, but you need yeah, to. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is the sort of thing it. you really got to play around with. And um, I mean, I mean the way he did it in his song was, was beautiful and you can tell there's a melodic harmonic sort of twist um, in the middle of his verse, and and it and it ties together nicely and everything like that, but doesn't sound ordinary. Um, so yeah, so this is a bit a bit of a longer clip, but this is him uh, uh, talking about that. And I picked up my guitar, and the chord progression. What, when I hear this chord progression, it actually reminds me of that that Elton John song, Your Song, because it has that you know it has the uh, you know the um, uh, what do you call it? The uh, it has the dominant, but I played it on the third beat, so it feels like it's going to the relative minor when it goes to the sixth. Then, hmm. so a um, uh, the the term for it is escaping me right now. It is um, uh, oh, uh, uh, no, it's like uh, well, I mean, it it ends up feeling like a five one in, in, the, in the relative minor, but the the word for hmm. it when you use a dominant in the place that isn't on the fifth, I forget. Just the term for it is escaping <laughs> me right now. <laughs> I'm sure someone out uh, one of our listeners will let us know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure somebody's screaming it right now. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah, yeah. But um yeah, I'm actually typing it into my search engine here because it's gonna bother me. The whole thing's gonna bother me. Um it's 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 like it's like it's like a, like a dominant substitution where you can use the dominant in different places um where it'll feel better. Like you know, like you'll have sometimes you'll be on the root and then you'll turn the root into like a five into like a like a like a dominant seventh chord and you go to the fourth and it feels very natural because going from when you when you have that on the root um with uh, as a dominant seventh chord it makes it feel like the five and then when you're going to the four it makes you feel like like you're going to uh to the root of what the, if the four was the root is that like an inverse harmony or a, remember remember i told you about this phil about that about that pyramid the the, the oh, yeah. music theory um music theory iceberg uh, oh, video yeah. on youtube and you talked about negative harmony negative harmony was the term that he used for like a substituted cadence or yeah, Interesting. a substituted yeah. dominant to, to bring yeah. it back. Yeah, I, I, the, the the term itself is is a, it's going to come to me at the middle of this call, and I'm just going to blurt it out. It's just <laughs> I'm, I'm having like a like like a like a 
uh, a brain fart moment here, if you will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, you're talking about that, and you use that in, in the song that's coming up, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, in, in, in a dear friend. Like, when I, what I do is, because normally, you know, if you're playing diatonically, the third is a minor chord. Yeah. But I turned the third into a dominant seventh chord, and then when it goes to the sixth, that's what it would do. If because the sixth is the relative minor, it's it's uh, you're 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 changing the harmony slightly so that it it, it makes it a little bit more interesting than just staying within the key. What uh, can you remember? What line that you did that on? So people can listen. Trying not to take it off for granted and haven't yet. Okay, so that part. So when we're listening to that, uh, try to pay attention to that little bit of uh, musical theory and see if you can identify it. Right, Basically, I'm doing an A7 chord where there should be an A minor chord. Right. Okay. And then when you go to the D minor, uh, because the, you know the A7 to the D minor sounds like a five one in the key of D minor, um, but you know it's not like there's a C sharp in F major. So. Oh, cool. So it's yeah, it's right. it's a very common musical device. Like if you took a song like yeah, yeah. Um, I'm Not the Only One by Sam Smith, I think he does that in the key of E or F. And if, let's just take it as F just so I can use it in the same example. It would be F, A7, D minor, B flat. So the third is normally if you're going diatonically, you know, minor, you know, major, minor, minor, major, major, minor, diminished. Or if you're doing, you know, major seven, minor seven, minor seven, major seven, dominant seventh, minor seventh, half diminished. So the third is normally a minor chord or a minor seventh chord, depending on how you voice it. But if you do it as a dominant seventh chord, it goes very naturally to the sixth, which because it feels like a five one in, in the in the in the minor key, oh, cool. in the relative minor. So is, is that sort of a move? Does that come naturally to you? You're just strumming your guitar, or is that something you actually have to think about theoretically? It, uh, I don't think about it theoretically. I think about it musically. Um, right. I, I, there are a handful of ways that I would typically change key within a song. Um, and uh, that's one of the more common ways to do it. And it's really just a very quick thing. Like you can do it in multiple places where it can feel natural, the same way that you can use diminished chords as transitional chords if you want to do like some kind of a chromatic progression. Um, uh, I, I tend to listen to music which steps out of the key a lot. Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say that it's always necessary, but it's the same way of having a large vocabulary. You use the right word at the right time. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yeah. We're, it takes, takes a couple of times going over that, that stuff. But mm -hmm. trust me, folks, when we start talking about modes more in January, this is going to come back to haunt us. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling secondary dominants are going to play a part in there somehow. <laughs> I think when we do the song challenge, maybe we'll have someone come on and talk about modes and uh, actually bring an instrument and actually play it as opposed yeah, to just talking. Yeah, because it's important, it. it's important to know what it sounds like. I think that would be quite helpful. And even if you hear it, it's, it's worthwhile going through the stuff and playing it on your own because it'll, it'll make more sense to you, I think. Yeah, and that's the only way it does make sense because a lot of these... A lot of these YouTube videos and stuff, they go through the theory and and you can you can study the math, but until you hear it, it's not gonna mean a lot. <laughs> not much at all. Been a pretty great uh, year, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, next year is gonna shaping up to being another interesting one with a songwriting challenge. Sure, it's gonna be fun. Hope you're gonna take part, Mike. I think I shall. Though awesome. it sounds daunting. Modes and that's the dominance idea. And, ah, I don't know. <laughs> My, I, I, I promise you, you've done it already. You just didn't know it. Yeah, the, okay. the trick here is doing it on purpose. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I do like the song talk challenges for pushing me into unfamiliar waters. Absolutely, that's what they're designed. The to challenge. Do. The challenge is the point. <laughs> the keyword <Yeah>. challenge. <laughs> exactly. And the songwriting. That part's important too. Yeah. I did come across a photo of us on Facebook Memories hmm. of Mike and Neil, myself, and Vanessa at the radio station, and I really, really miss that. That was so much fun doing it in person and mm -hmm. going out for beers afterwards with you the know the crew and, and, and yeah, a, yeah and the, the guest. It was it was great. It was so much fun. In some ways, doing it over Zoom has opened up lots of possibilities. We have people from Australia and Europe and the States on the show. Mm -hmm. But it's something to be said about getting together and having a beer at the same time, you know? Well, yeah. Real life conversation. Yeah. So I thought it was a, it's been a pretty great year so far, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, and uh, 
best wishes, bon chance for year 10. Yeah. Nice. That's exciting. It'll be the 10-year mark next year, this time next year, Phil. That's right. Hmm. I'll be another year older. So this year, uh, has have people been giving you mugs and things? Because the ninth anniversary gift is pottery. Oh, is it? Oh, is it? There you go. Something else you've learned, Phil. <laughs> In case oh, wow. you didn't this know is that. Like, oh, this all is all incredible. Some <laughs> talk radio mugs. Okay, so <laughs> what I learned is the difference between cemetery graveyard mm-hmm. and uh, the ninth is pottery. What was the other one I learned? Mosaic rhymes. And mosaic rhymes. And, and secondary go. dominance, if you didn't know about that Secondary dominance. It's just secondary been a, dominant. <laughs> just a jam-packed show. Packed full of songwriting goodness. Okay, that's. Uh, I think that is about the time, because I'm here in the band. Special thanks yeah. to Mike Proudfoot. Thanks for coming on uh, and joining us today for a special episode. Mike, it's good to see you again. Thank you for having me back. It was uh, a lot Thank of fun. Thank you, Mike. Awesome. Just feels like the old days. I'll have to start uh, listening uh, to the the Mode show and other things, so I'll be ready for the Song Talk Challenge. That's right. Do some homework. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we want to hear from you, our beloved listeners. Please send us your comments, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to at Song Talk Radio, or send us an email, feedback at songtalk.ca. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel for live performance videos and full episodes. Subscribe today to the Song Talk Radio podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And you can find links to all the products, books, and web services we mentioned on the show on our resources page. And of course, wherever you are in the world, please join us online via Zoom at our next monthly Song Talk Meetup. It's free to join on meetup.com and free to attend the meetup, bring a song and a lyric sheet, and get constructive feedback from other songwriters. Stop by songtalk.ca for the link. You can follow me at neilmody.com. You can follow Phil at philemory.ca. And Mike, are you being followed these days? No, I've dropped out of society. Oh, no. (laughs) Glad you could come here, at least. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to stop by the website, songtalk.ca, to browse past shows and find out how you can be a guest. Thanks for tuning in. Happy ninth anniversary, guys, and keep on writing. Happy anniversary, everyone. See you next year. Next show, I guess. Or something. Yeah, 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 that was perfect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Under an hour. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was fun. You were very quiet, Phil. Your signal. Just your, just your signal, your not, signal. Not, your, not your mood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>